Welcome to In Context and Culture, a podcast hosted by pastors Corey Majors and Trent Roseman, intended to clarify and comment on critical issues pertaining to theology, the Bible, and life in the church. Now, enjoy the podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us once again this Monday morning or whatever day really you're listening to this. Uh, You'll note that we just started back a new season of this podcast where we're going to be walking through the book of Revelation hopefully with you. Uh, We would like for you to walk through it with us, uh, whether that's in your personal Bible study or whether that's in your drive to and from work or from school or wherever you're at in life. We would love for you to follow along in this book with us as we just take it step by step, verse by verse, line by line, and just kind of teach some things that we're learning uh, uh, ourselves uh, and share them with you. So we're so glad that you're tuned in. Just want to say this before we get started. The first is, um, if you have not yet listened to the first two podcasts we've already had on this season or in this season, we want you to first go back and listen to those. The first podcast is really about the introduction to the book of Revelation. The second one is the first three verses in the book of Revelation, which is so important uh, because we're looking at, hey, what is Revelation all about before we walk through it uh, line by line? So we hope you go and listen to those. Today we'll be in verses four through eight. One more thing is uh, we do have an Instagram page now, and uh, so many of you have been following that Instagram page. We're thankful for that. On our Instagram page, we'll be posting you know, snippets or clips um, of the podcast. We'll be reminding you that every Monday we'll have a new episode. Um, and uh, I just posted, Corey, you remember, I know you saw this, um, that one of my young adult students uh, named Lizzie uh, texted me just earlier this week and said, um, I was listening to the podcast uh, I've been really enjoying it, and at the end when you guys prayed, I'm driving in to work, and I accidentally begun, began to close my eyes on my way in, and I thought that was really funny. She thought it was funny, and so just a PSA to all our listeners, hey, if you're listening to this and you're on your way into work, at no point should you close your eyes if you're behind the wheel, so just a reminder, I thought it's good just to mention that before we get started, so I hope you have your Bibles open. If not, listen carefully, because Corey's going to lead us by reading the text. Yeah, open your Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. We'll begin in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Man, I'm excited to be in this text with you. Why don't you start us out with the context? Yeah, unless you have something else. Well, I'm just saying it is a powerful context, or it is a powerful text because of of everything that it talks about, uh, just who is included in it, who it's addressed to, and all of those things. And I think one of the very first things we need to look at is the fact that that it's written um, by John, the apostle, um, 
who has been who this has been dictated to by the angel as through Christ through God the Father and so there's just this real um, care that is taken in making sure that that we get the message of revelation and one of the things it says is John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now these are seven literal churches that are in Asia Minor and you can look through the rest of chapters 2 and 3 and see what those are. It's Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and I think Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and I can't remember the next one. Um, but anyway, those are seven literal churches, but the number seven is important in Revelation. It's we, We've talked previously about the symbolic nature of Revelation, and the number seven is... Uh, the favorite symbol or a favorite number uh, in Revelation. Fifty-five times it is used, and the number seven is really meant uh, to show perfection and completion in all things. And so this, these are seven literal churches, but they are meant to represent all of the churches there in the first century and also by extension all of the churches of Christ. And so um, I think that is important that we see that number seven is symbolic and it does, this is a message to not just those churches but to us. So just because the Philadelphia mention is not the Philadelphia Philadelphia we're aware of <laughs> yeah. uh, here in the United States or just because we don't know where to put point on a map and find Laodicea doesn't mean that what is within the book of Revelation isn't just as much for us as the Church of Jesus Christ um, as it was for the Church of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Absolutely. Um, very good. So what else do we see in here? Um, I, I think just in verse 4 um, through 8, you see a powerful um, inclusion of the Trinitarian God that we serve. You notice not only is it two seven churches— but it's from uh, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, which I think we would see that as the Father. Um, mm-hmm. It's from the seven spirits who are before his throne, which we were, we'll talk about more, but it's, I think you see the Holy Spirit there. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So for us, um, uh, for, for we who believe that God is um, Trinity, that he's three persons, yet one God. It is just so clear and so beautiful that in these verses here, you see God in his fullness just saying, hey, this is from me to you, right? Um, I think you mentioned um, uh, to me that this is the only time you see uh, a letter introduced from both the or all of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Am I right in that? Yeah, usually there's just, you know, Paul writes a lot in his greetings, uh, in his letters, uh, that it's from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe it's just in the name of the Father or, or something like that. But this is the only letter that is written uh, in the name of all three persons of the Trinity. So I think that carries a lot of weight and a lot of significance here. So help me out. Um, I mentioned that we mentioned it later we said that we think this is both from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and I'm going in chronological order here, and from uh, the Son, Jesus Christ. But why would it mention 
from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Why would we take that as the Holy Spirit? And why does it mention seven spirits? Is there like more than one Holy Spirit? Or um, could it not just be like angels or something like that? Uh, what's your thoughts? Well, I think that I think that some people would look at that, and you know, if they're if they're trying to read uh, this book literally like they would read others, and not in symbolic nature, uh, they might be very confused by that. But uh, I think we see here an allusion back to Isaiah uh, eleven two, where the Spirit is referenced seven different times there in the book of Isaiah uh, as being the the Spirit of uh, of wisdom and understanding, um, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And, and so that, that fear is the seventh one. And so there's just, again, the idea of completeness, um, but, it, but it does reference back to the Old Testament. We've mentioned several times before that the book of Revelation has more allusions to the Old Testament than any other book of the Bible or any other book of the New Testament. And so we, we always have to keep those contexts in mind. And so there's this idea of the, the, the fullness or the completeness of the Spirit by referring to Him as the seven spirits. And this is the only time it happens. I think it happens in Revelation 3.1, Revelation mm-hmm. 4.5. The Holy Spirit um, is mentioned as the seven spirits before the throne, the seven spirits of God. Um, uh, two, I think it would just be important to note that as you mentioned that Isaiah 11 passage, if in fact John is referring to that passage, Isaiah 11 is not talking about seven different spirits. It's talking about the seven practical functions of the person of the Holy Spirit, right? And right. so um, it's, I, I think it's best understood, just as you said, to use that symbolic understanding of seven as we see it throughout the rest of the book and say, hey, this is the complete work and power of the Holy Spirit, the person um, of the Holy Spirit. So um, I think that's just awesome. A few other things I think are just worth noting that we'll mention more about uh, Christ in our Christ section, um, about uh, the fact that he's a faithful witness. We'll look at that. We'll talk about how he's made us a kingdom, made us priests. But I think it's really important for us to mention in context because we're seeing some intertextuality, intertextuality here, um, meaning that this phrase is used in other parts of the Old and even New Testaments, this section in verse 7, it says, Behold, he, that is Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So just a couple things here. Um, where do we see God coming on the clouds? Well, most people would understand this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where we see the day of the Lord and the Son of Man coming to basically enact judgment upon the earth. Now, there would be some preterists that would take Daniel 7, 13 as already fulfilled in the ascension of Christ, right? But we, not being preterists, um, would rather see uh, what Daniel 7, 13 was pointing toward to what John would see now as fulfilled in the second coming at Jesus's return, right? So I just want to also mention and uh, and not try to get into controversy yet or different ideas yet, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, you see Jesus coming on the clouds. This is the passage in verse uh, 13 through 18 in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's often known as the rapture passage. I think it's synonymous with 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection passage that Paul looks at. And I also think if uh, and kind of giving my own opinion here, 1 Thessalonians 5, um, in that coming on the cloud 
uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, coming of Christ, um, when he'll resurrect his people. I think 1 Thessalonians 5 is a recapitulation of that same exact moment, and it's uh, for judgment, that sudden destruction will come upon those when Christ does return who are unbelievers, and they will not escape. And so it makes sense to say, hey, he's coming with the clouds, ever I will see him, and hey, the tribes will wail, right? Mm. Because he's coming to enact judgment. Um, so um, at believers, we can look, you know, with excitement toward that day in a sense, because that's that's the day of our resurrection, the trumpet blast, we'll get to be with the Lord, we'll always be with him from that point on. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, no, there's, there's going to be a time of wailing where those um, you know, who did not acknowledge him and rejected the Lord will not escape from sudden destruction. Anything else you would just want to mention with the coming on the clouds? Well, I mean, I, I think you pretty well encapsulated it there, but I'll just tell you, uh, <laughs> I think I mentioned this to you before, but like, I don't, I don't think there's been another year of my life um, that I have longed for that day more than 2020. Uh, with everything that's going on, um, you know, we as believers, boy, we, we look to that day with great anticipation, and uh, I am ready for it, and I am also, uh, that is one thing that keeps me in ministry just trying to go all out is because I know that there are people that that will wail if they don't hear the gospel. Uh, they will, that will not be a great day for them. It will be a terrible day. And so, you know, even doing this podcast and, and preaching each week, you know, like I remember the coming of the Lord and I look forward to it, but know that there's people that will not. And so, um, we just keep preaching the gospel and, and going forward and going hard after the Lord. Yeah, I think, you know, we live as believers between two advents, right? Mm-hmm. The first coming of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord. And during this time, it's a unique time. We're in a kind of a time in between. Um, George Ladd, a famous commentator and teacher at Fuller Seminary a number of years back, he's since passed, um, was very in, it has been very influential in my understanding of the Scriptures. And he coined this phrase that many interpreters use now called the already not yet. Mm-hmm. So we're already believers, but we're not yet what we will be. Uh, for example, First John 3, 2, I don't have it in front of me, but it says basically, um, we as the children of God look forward to the time when Christ will return because we will see him like he is. We will be yeah. uh, like him, right? So there's, there's an aspect to which we look forward to what we will be when Christ returns, even though we're already adopted as his people, right? So um, in this time in between, uh, there's persecution, there's suffering, there's difficulty, right? And, and how should we think about the return of Christ? Well, you mentioned, I think, both sides of it. As believers, I think there's an aspect to which the Bible tells us to say, How long, O Lord? Like, we're ready for you to come. Um, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, right? And there's also the appreciation for God that, Hey, Corey, you and I probably both have people that we know that we wish to know the Lord, and yet they don't, right? Yeah. Maybe we've shared the gospel with them. Uh, maybe we know of other people that have shared the gospel with them. And uh, and so, in a sense, we're thankful that, as First Peter says, the Lord is patient, not wishing any to perish, mm-hmm. right? And so we live in this tension between, God, we, we want you to come now, right? We want your righteousness to prevail. We want your kingdom to come as we pray for that, as the Lord has instructed us to pray for that. And yet we are thankful that in his divine you know, sovereignty, he has decided to... Um, delay. And his delay is not because of inactivity. His delay is because of his patience. Right. So um, 
Now, during this time, I mentioned persecution. I know that was something you wanted to mention in context. Well, I just think it's important that we understand that that is who John is writing to, is our people, our churches that are in the midst of persecution. I mean, he even says, and I don't want to get too much into what we're going to talk about next time, but there in verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Well, all of these churches, and we'll see it played out over the course of the different churches that we address, but all of them are experiencing persecution and trials in one form or another. And I think that's important for us to remember, you know, when we in America, whenever, well, at least we, uh, I'm going to say me rather than we, but whenever I hear the word persecution, a lot of times I think of it as physical persecution, um, being imprisoned or beaten or or martyred, those kind of things. But I think persecution could come in various forms. And, and clearly trials can come in various forms. And we're beginning to see some of that persecution against the church, even in America today. Um, and so uh, as we read this, we need to understand that that persecution is something that, that we will face and is normative in the life of the believer. It's not something exceptional uh, that only a few experience. Jesus says you will have tribulation, um, but to take heart for I have overcome. And so um, I, I think it's important for us to see that as we're going through. Yeah, so you're saying that um, tribulation is to be expected um, as a follower of Jesus, right? Um, is as far as tribulation being used in the New Testament fluently for suffering and persecution, right? Um, Jesus said, "If they hate me, they'll hate you too," right? Um, and so far be it from us to think that there's not other brothers and sisters all around the world, even North Korea right now, enduring horrible amounts of suffering. And yet, you mentioned too it's that that persecution doesn't always look like um, a physical. Um, uh, declared war against believers. I mean, in First Peter, for example, he mentions, um, uh, I don't remember the exact passage he mentions that I wish I, I did, but he warns that there's a fiery trial going to come against them. But he said basically, in another passage in First Peter, he says, you know, you have not uh, yet suffered physically, right? They had been slandered, they had suffered um, uh, marginalization, but not yet, you know, an, an outright physical um uh, mandate for like the Roman army, for example, to go against uh, the people of God. So um, I, I think it's good just to note, as you mentioned, that you know John is writing to churches that endure the tribulation and this uh, enduring tribulation, and this is written to us even as we might endure tribulation. And of course, we'll we'll get to in the future the great tribulation, where we kind of land on whether or not we think that believers will go through that. Um, but it's just important to note this is two believers incur incurring tribulation, and it is so even today. Uh, lastly, I just want to add, as far as context goes, that it seems as if um, a lot of people when they encounter Revelation are looking for something brand new, um, something almost uh, amorphous to the rest of the New Testament, um, something completely different. But what you have at the very beginning of the book of Revelation is um, at its heart and at its center, it's all about the death and resurrection of Jesus, mm. right? So Jesus' and Jesus's death and resurrection is central to the book of Revelation. If you just look at this beginning, it says, um, you know, grace and peace to you from 
um, the Father, from the Holy Spirit, from the Son, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, who is the firstborn from the dead, and who is, in a sense, returning for those that have trusted in him, right? So if we're looking for something new, um, we're in the wrong place because the yeah. Bible is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we, we that, that's enough. That should be enough uh, for us. Um, and, I, and I just think as we kind of move into Christ and culture, I think that what we often expect or even want in the book of Revelation is a step-by-step guide how to handle difficult days, right? And yet, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, right, um, writing the words of God does not give us a step-by-step process for those encountering tribulation, right? They were encountering tribulation. This is what he's given them. Instead, he just points them to who Jesus is and how he views us from the forefront, right? So in persecution, we need much less of an instruction on what to do, and we need much more of a reminder of who he is and how he views us. His power, for example, that he is above all other kings, it says, that he is the one who is, who was, and who is to come, uh, the one whose dominion is forever and ever. Our position before him, he says, grace to you, right, the churches? This is positional, like we're, as Romans chapter 5, verse 2 says, that we're standing in grace. We've received grace from the Lord, and that's the grace that we're standing in positionally before him. And also, our peace with him. We have peace. And this isn't just an abstract peace separated from God. This is peace from God, um, from his spirit and from his son, uh, written down from the forefront of the book to believers that are encountering real difficult days, right? So in persecution, we need much less, I think, of an instruction on what to do and much more of a reminder of his power, our position before him, and our peace with him. And that will get us through difficult days. Absolutely. And I think, too, that another thing, that another error people make in looking at the book of Revelation is not just saying, I want a step-by-step guide to per- through persecution, but they also say, I want to, I want to find something new or novel. Um, maybe there's, there's something in here I haven't seen that will give me a clue to who the Antichrist is or like all of those kind of things. And people have made a fortune writing books on what they think these different things are uh, in, in modern context. But we look at the very first sentence of Revelation. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, it's just a, it's just a going, it's just a more of a revealing of who he is. Like you, like you said, that that's what we need in the church. And, and as we go through these letters, you're going to find that, that he reveals himself a a special aspect, one or two different uh, characteristics of himself to each one of the churches, which they will need in that Mm. time and what they're dealing with. And so we don't need to think that we're ever that that Jesus Christ isn't the focus of this book. I mean, he's the focus of every book of the Bible, but especially this one is that there's more of a revealing of the resurrected, the glorious power of Christ. And so, um, boy, I tell you, if we get a if we get to a point in our Christian walk where we're trying to move past Jesus to find out something else, we're we've gone way off the path. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we we definitely need to focus on that death and resurrection and just the person of Christ in Revelation. So, Corey, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you saying that the primary person that we are to see revealed in the book of Revelation is not 
the Antichrist uh, is not um, uh, the, the different symbolic references to locusts and horses, but is Jesus himself. And are you saying not only that that's the primary person being revealed um, in his fullness, but is also the person revealing in himself a revelation of Jesus Christ? Yes. I would say that is true of Revelation and every other book of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm not saying this as in, I'm setting you up not to say that uh, I don't believe that, but that sounds foreign, I think, to people. Right. Well, sure. Not foreign that the whole Bible doesn't, you know, the whole Bible reveals Jesus Christ, but sometimes foreign to think practically the way we take the book is okay. Let me figure out this, then this, then this, then this, and sometimes we just miss Jesus altogether, right? Yeah, I think so because uh, a lot of times people approach Scripture um, in a man-centered way rather than in a God and Christ-centered way. You know, like we're we're looking at it as. Well, what's going to help me get through this day, or what's going to help me get through persecution, or or what's going to what's going to show me this mystery that needs to be revealed, and all of these things? And we're not the primary actor in the in the scriptures. God is, and um, and so we we just need to have a completely different paradigm uh, for the way we approach the scriptures, uh, and and make sure that we're God centered in this because He's revealed. Without the scriptures, we wouldn't know who God is at all. I mean, we would know we would know that He exists because we can see His divine attributes through nature. Is what uh, Romans tells us. But we wouldn't know him in a personal way if it wasn't for the scriptures. And so I, I think, you know, not just approaching Revelation, but it, but because um, there are so many errant ways to approach it, I think it's important for us to point that out in the very beginning. So let's just briefly, we're mentioning Christ here, obviously, right? Um, but let's just mention a few different descriptive terms or phrases that are used for Christ in this passage, and let's mention them briefly. So uh, there's more than these, but let's look at the faithful witness, if we can. Um, Let's look at the firstborn of the dead, um, and let's look at the fact that it says he's the ruler of the kings on earth. Can we just look at those three just briefly? So uh, faithful witness. Um, I'll mention that one. I'm going to let you take firstborn of the dead, if that's all right. So faithful witness uh, is mentioned more than in just this passage alone. It's mentioned of a man named Antipas, and I think that's how you say his name in chapter Mm 2. And it's someone who was martyred. uh, And the word martyr really just means witness, but we take the word martyr uh, as a witness unto death most often. And so he was a witness unto death. He had died for sharing the gospel. And, um, you know, when Jesus walked the earth, Jesus being himself, God, truly man, truly God, um, was uh, um, the the greatest uh, revelation, if you will, of God's um, person and God's plan, right? And so as he was witnessing the good news of the kingdom of God, he himself, in being faithful unto death, like a sheep led to the slaughter, did not open his mouth, um, he he died uh, for the cause of of his father, right? And so we as Christians, followers of Christ, are called to be faithful witnesses as well. Faithful witnesses as well. And we're not sure that that um, means that every single one of us, I mean, I know plenty of faithful believers that didn't die at the hands of those persecuting them, um, but were able to die as John did, um, uh, exiled or on an island, you know, died of old age, whatever it might be. Um, But we are called to be faithful witnesses. So, but our primary example of that is, is Jesus himself, 
right? So this is, right. I think, an exemplary picture here. The, the one, the, the faithful witness. So be faithful. Absolutely. And then, I mean, getting into the firstborn from the dead, there's another place in Scripture that Jesus is referred to as that. If we look back over in the book of Colossians, um, we're going to find that designation. Paul uses that for, for Christ as well. And, and both there in that passage and here, we need to understand firstborn not meaning, I mean, Paul refers to him as firstborn of creation and also the firstborn um, from the dead. And in that, we need to understand that that means primacy, that, that, that Christ is supreme in that, uh, being firstborn from the dead, this resurrection. But I do think here there is, a, there is a reference also to the first in order as well. So there's both of those things. And there, there's this idea of life begetting life. And so because Christ is firstborn of the dead, it means that his life then gives those who he redeems life as well. And so um, this this firstborn from the dead is a very important um, because it's what gives us hope for the future. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we have hope of a resurrection. And, and if, mm. if Christ was not raised, we're most of all to be pitied. And so this firstborn is extremely important here in this passage. Yeah, so 1 Corinthians 15 talks even more about the fact that uh, since he died, that is Christ, and resurrected, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? And so uh, because he died and resurrected, we will too, even though we die, resurrect from the dead to dwell with the Lord forever and ever, right? So this firstborn of the dead, what sometimes can be a confusing phrase, is a is is a phrase that really signifies and um, uh, encompasses the hope that we have, right? Yeah. Uh, we will um, see him uh, because he resurrected. We will resurrect because he resurrected. Um, so uh, I don't know if I'm getting off track there. But lastly, uh, the ruler of the kings of earth. So this is verse, um, let me go back to the book of Revelation here. It says in verse um, 5, He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. So this is the archon, the king of kings. Um, and the king at this time, or the emperor at this time, was Caesar. And of course, it can be debated on which Caesar was in power at this, at the time of writing the book of Revelation. But Caesar was the, the top dog, the man, the top of the food chain, right? You don't mess with Caesar. If you look at any kind of um, uh, emperor of that day, if you looked at them funny, right, um, it's, it seems like they would just take your life, right? Yeah. That they held your life in their hands. Um, that they uh, expanded their kingdom beyond imagination. That you couldn't fathom even the power that they had. And this simple statement is basically saying, you think Caesar's in charge? Yeah. Right? You think he's calling the shots? Don't forget the book of Revelation where Nebuchadnezzar had walls that three chariots could line side by side on top of him. It was a huge kingdom. And yet God made what he was internally, externally, as he threw him out of his own kingdom and made him a beast. Yeah. So he said, with the snap of my fingers, there won't be a Caesar anymore. And eventually in the same passage, it says that his dominion is forever and ever. Well, guess whose kingdom doesn't exist anymore? I mean, all that's left of Rome is just ruins yeah. um, that people like to take pictures of, right? So um, 
uh, that, that, that stands as a testimony to the fact that it could not last forever and ever. And he basically says, hey, you can endure because the one that you serve is sovereign in control and can remove kings and whose kingdom will never end, right? That's the king that you serve, not just an emperor that exists here and is gone. And I don't so we need... Bri- oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I don't want to bridge too much into culture, but at the same time, I think that has to be, we have to remember that today because it it doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum in the United States today and where you where you're coming down on the election and you know all of those things either one of these men that were up for president of the United States they will be there for just a minute time and in Christ is the one we must look to, and he's the one where we must place our hope, not in the political system of the United States or any other nation. Hmm. Yeah, I just read a tweet, uh, not to get in the Twitterverse here, but I just read a tweet um, by uh, Patrick Schreiner, who uh, one of my favorite professors has been, um, Tom Schreiner at SBTS, and Patrick, his son, just took a job at um, uh, Midwestern in Kansas City, where... Uh, we both used to call home, and uh, he tweeted this, and I just thought it was phenomenal. He said this. I'm actually looking for it right now. A baptismal dove conquers the imperial eagle, <laughs> right? I've also heard it said that Christ will not be returning on Air Force One, right? Um, <laughs> I like that. that. Yeah, that our hope is not in any sort of um, uh, king that will exist on this earth. You know, uh, if if you know if if Biden um, uh, is president, if Trump's president, if Putin's in power, it will only be because God appointed them to be there. Yeah. And they will only be there as long as God wants them there until He'll take them from their position, right? Um, and it could be yes for our joy as believers on the earth, or it could be for judgment. Um, ultimately. We can rest in the fact, though, that God's still in charge and that he loves his people and that he is faithful to his promises. Amen. Um, I think it would be fitting for us at the time that we're already at to just talk about some controversial things, unless you want to just mention some other things with culture. Can I, can I mention this? I, I mentioned this in just a, a, a message I gave to students not long ago. It's a phrase that I go back to. I don't know if you have those like phrases that you just give a lot, right, or... Um, that you try to just kind of keep planting, something that's maybe sat with you that you wrote. But in talking about these things to try to help, I think, get our young adults and our students outside of the reality that, hey, the United States the United States may not always be here, and we can't just put our trust in our president. I always just say something like this. Hey, our mission as believers is not and has never been to preserve an earthly kingdom. Hmm. Our mission as believers has been, is, and has always been, sorry, to proclaim an eternal kingdom. Hmm. So um, if we realize that our God is in charge of all, then we won't cower when all that seems to be in charge around us is going against us, right? Right. Um, So let's talk about controversy, unless you have anything else you want to mention there. No, that's all right. I'll, I'll hit it whenever we get to this next section. Okay. So uh, a couple of things that shouldn't be so controversial, but um, it says that he made us, um, let me see what verse we're in here. We're in verse 6, 
To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he made us a kingdom, priest to God and father to him, be glory and forever, dominion forever and ever. So he's made us a kingdom and he's made us priests. Well, when I see this kingdom phrase, I'm always thinking of Matthew chapter 21. It's the parable of the wicked tenants. And um, I think what we're seeing here is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would take place in uh, Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, there's a parable basically of a master uh, who gives his, um, uh, is it a vineyard? Am I right? Is it a vineyard? Yes. Uh, yeah, to some servants or some tenants, sorry. And then he leaves and uh, has them tend the fields that he owns. Uh, then he sends a servant in, and they kill the servant, the tenants do. Um, the servant was sent to bring the fruit back to the master to whom it belongs. But they kill the servant. He sends another servant. They kill that servant, which are representative of the prophets in the Old Testament. Then the master says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they will not harm my son, right? And he'll come back and bring the results of their faithful, faithful labor. He sends his son, and what do they do? Well, they kill the son, and they suppose if they kill the son, they'll keep the kingdom. And yet the master says, I will remove the kingdom from them and give it to more faithful uh, 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 tenants, right, um, uh, who, who understand who I am, and I will kill them, right? Um, uh, because they, they went against the cornerstone, right? And so I will give them the kingdom, those who... Uh, know who I am, right? You trust in the cornerstone. And so uh, I think it talks about here, he's talking about the church, the kingdom, right? Um, we are a part of the kingdom of God, those that have trusted in Jesus Christ, because the Bible is very clear. You don't know the Father if you don't know the Son or don't recognize the Son, right? Absolutely. If you do not trust the Son, you don't know the Father, Um so uh, I think First John's very clear in that. So I think there's a fulfillment here. And, and as far as priests go, um, the priest was a specific status of a particular group of Israel. But now it seems like he's applying it to the whole church, right? And I think he's applying it to the whole church and their functionality. Because the priest would speak to others on behalf of God, um, sharing his plan and who he was and his, um, what he's like, right? And so we speak about God to others. Um, but we also, uh, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're his ambassadors, right? That's the church. Um, but also, we sacrifice. We sacrifice differently than the Old Testament, of course, because uh, because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, atoning for our sins. But we sacrifice our own lives, Romans chapter 12 says. So as priests to God, we give ourselves wholly to God, right? So he calls us priests. This particular group of Old Testament Israel is now applied to the church. Very unique. And I, and I think that that's not, I mean, obviously that's not the only place you see that referenced. Right. Um, in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, right. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so there, Peter's taking specific language that was addressed to Israel and addressing it and, and applying it to uh, the church. And Exodus so, 19, in the covenant he made with Israel at Mount Sinai, he said those words, and now Peter is saying those same words, but applying them to the church. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, even even in the book of Ephesians, he's taking two two people or two two groups and making them into one man, you know. And so 
So you don't have this separation anymore. And, and he's applying this to the church, to all believers. So before we hop into that controversial thing <laughs> anymore, <laughs> uh, let's talk about a second controversy. And I know we were already, at, I think, hitting 40 minutes almost. So we've got to be quick here. But the coming with the clouds, right? And the clouds in the Old Testament are always a reference to the presence of God with his people, right? I don't know if always, but you see God dwelling with his people uh, in, the, in the clouds or in a cloud or uh, the cloud that hovered over the temple or whatever it might be. Now, a lot of times what you look back in, or, or what this is bringing up, I, I think we talked about Daniel 7.13, but you see this in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 4 um, where Jesus will be coming uh, on the clouds. Okay, And 1 Thessalonians 4 is that rapture passage where, um, uh, where the people of God will be translated or raptured, caught up with Christ in the air. Um, and there's a different opinion on the direction of where Jesus goes in that moment. Um, is he coming to earth or is he uh, rapturing his people outside um, of the earth or from the earth to heaven for a seven-year tribulation where um, the, tribu- the great tribulation will come? against uh, people who have not believed on the earth. So here's the issue with this, though. Um, the, the coming with the clouds reference in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, one who holds a dispensational framework, uh, is going to have to argue that that 1 Thessalonians 4 um, happening is uh, before the seven years. It's a secret return, a quiet re- quiet return, um, and that's not the eventual return for judgment, right? Um, however, he says he's coming on clouds here in Revelation chapter 1, and it's judgment because every eye will see him. So I've mm-hmm. talked to an individual who holds the dispensational position. I respect him very, very well. Um, but he basically says, well, here it says every eye will see him. What doesn't say that in 1 Thessalonians 4? Well, the issue is, if you don't think every eye will see him in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have to explain away the fact that there's a trumpet blast, a voice of an archangel, and a cry of command from God, right? Yeah. That's not a very quiet moment, right? I mean, I can't play trumpet, but I've never thought trumpets were quiet. So, um, And generally, they're pictured in the Old Testament as the announcement of the presence or the coming of the king. Correct, correct. So if you hold a dispensational framework, you have to basically say this is in Revelation chapter 1 is the second return. This is not 1 Thessalonians 4. But this is where 1 Thessalonians 4 mentions him coming on the clouds. Um, so I take, this is a controversial take, I take 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 to be a recapitulation of the same event, um, basically said from the unbeliever's perspective in 1 Thessalonians 5, the believer's perspective from 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 can look forward to his return of the coming of the clouds because that's the resurrection, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, um, he says you don't need to know the timing of that event in 1 Thessalonians 4 because you're prepared for it. He says, stay prepared for it, because for those who aren't prepared, um, it's going to come at them like a thief in the night, right? And it's sudden destruction, and they will not escape. And so 1 Thessalonians 4, when he comes in the clouds, right, is something to rejoice in as a believer, but it's something that people will, as it says in Revelation 1, wail about, because they're the individuals in 1 Thessalonians 5 who will not be prepared. Yeah, you know, you you mentioned a minute ago phrases that you kind of put in people's minds over and over. And one of those phrases that I use often is the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because because those are 
both same, one and the same. Again, it is going to be great for believers, terrible for unbelievers. And you see that in several passages in the New Testament. So, so I, I would completely agree with what, with your take on that, that here in verse 7 you have both the judgment of God and also um, the, the, the excitement that, um, that we're going to have whenever he returns. So to these things we say, even so, Lord, come quickly, yet we're grateful for your sovereign patience, not wishing any of it to perish, because it's because of his delay that we've become believers, right? Um, and we're thankful for that. He was patient with me. For a number of years, um, and if he had returned before, um, you know, we can only speculate. But I'm thankful that he is patient. And you know, really, that is why we, why John can write, and why we can possess the grace and peace of God, hmm. uh, even in the midst of all everything that's going on, um, because we know that day's coming. That's good. Well, let me pray us out. And uh, we're thankful once again that you guys tuned in with us. What a great passage of Scripture as a reminder just to look upon who He is, how He views us. His sovereignty allows us and enables us to get through dark days. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend, Corey and I, on this podcast. And Lord, we pray that the time that we've been able to spend together would be... um, Uh, useful and profitable for others who spend time on their phone listening to this podcast. Lord, I pray that it would stir their affections for you. I pray that it would um, encourage them as the day of the Lord draws near. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, they would have no reason to be uh, uh, not confident at your return. I think it's the end of 1 John 2 that talks about let us be confident before the Lord and faithful so we won't shrink in shame at His coming. So Lord, help us to get a bigger vision of who you are that gets us through dark days and help us, we pray, to remain faithful in times that are just uh, testing our faithfulness. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the God you are. We thank you for the privilege of being your people. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. And I want to encourage you uh, while we're talking about these things, boy, don't just take our word for it. Get your Bible, get other resources, dig into the scriptures for yourself and let the spirit begin to work in your heart through them. Uh, We would also ask that you would go to your favorite uh, podcast platform and give us a five-star review. Uh, If you have any questions, you can type it in the comments there. Uh, we We would love to entertain any questions and Hopefully this week there were no drivers injured in the making of this podcast. So join us again (laughs) next week. Thanks.